Another vet of wine invites you on a journey of winemaking in the unlikeliest of places. I'd better go and have a word with the guests. Why don't you have another vat of wine, dear? <laughs> Gosh, Niddy, what a lovely bouquet. Yes, it's a fine bunch of red rosés! <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Vat of Wine, a podcast where we talk to the people in the food and beverage world while enjoying a bottle of their favourite tipple or tasting of their fine product with wine luddite, Chris Buchanan. I'm standing in the shadow of the Berg, not the Simonsberg or the Helderberg or the Matruisberg, but the Drakensberg at the entrance to Abingdon Wine Estate in Lyons River. In front of me are the foothills of the Berg and KwaZulu-Natal Midlands, with Giant's Castle in the distance, and behind me a west-facing slope planted with vines. This is not winemaking country, but the proprietors, the Smallthwaite family, have made an enormous success of their award-winning food and winemaking venture over the last 15 years. And as John Platter said recently in Daily Maverick after a visit to Abingdon, the Nebbiolo is extraordinary. So join me on a stroll up this rustic tree-lined driveway, so typical of the Midlands, and meet the people behind the wine. Again with the Tonko village band of Piemonte saluting Nebbiolo and this best-kept secret. Right, so I'm with Ian and Jane Smallthwaite of Abingdon Wine Estate in KwaZulu-Natal. And don't gasp at the thought, but um, KwaZulu-Natal known for what you see when you drive up. It's pastoral, it's timber, it's, um, it's, it's not wine country, which you guys have broken the mold. And wine in Natal, tell us a little bit about wine in Natal and why you came to Natal to make wine. Um, Chris, first of all, we didn't come to Natal to make wine. We actually arrived here because our son was going to a school here. We were in Johannesburg, and we moved to Natal so that we would be closer to him and his sports, etc. The reason for the wine was we had seven hectares of land, and I had, had no idea what to do with it. And logically, it made sense to plant vineyards simply because although the lines of latitude don't necessarily work the altitude does we're 1140 meters so if you start to look at chardonnay sauvignon i mean most of the wines we tend to drink in this country don't originate in a mediterranean climate they originate in a continental climate in france or going up into germany with your rieslings so we have a continental climate very cold winters and although we get summer rain, so does Burgundy, so does Piemonte, so does the Loire Valley, there's not much difference. So logically it made sense for me to plant, and that's why I did. A lot of the farmers thought I was a nutcase in this area, but the guys down in the Western Cape said, go for it, as in the wine fraternity. They were incredibly supportive. So that was the reason. Is there, a, is there something that you have to do differently? in this climate compared to a Stellenbosch or a Franschhoek uh, in terms of your viticulture, first of all, in order to make vines work in the, in the, in, in the town? Yeah, definitely. Um, we are the opposite. So evenings, although evenings can be cool down there, we get very cool evenings, but it's more the hail, it's more the rainfall, we get fertile soils and vigour. So the way you grow your first year needs to be different. Um, you've got to get lignified trunks very early, otherwise the hail will wipe you out in October, November. Um, we can get hail on any given day. We can get snow on any given day. We've had snow here on New Year's Day before. Um, it's, it's a matter of trying to adapt the vine to harsh weather conditions at altitude. Our temperatures, we've seen a drop of 42 to 8 in six hours before 
that's that's during the day. And the, but that's a traditional element of this climate. It's mm-hmm. not a climate change phenomenon. No. That's that's the Midlands of KwaZulu Natal. Yeah. So you've you've got to you have to grow your vines in an old world style. Um, whether that be, I mean, at the moment, a lot of those vines are, are spur pruned, split cordon. Um, most of what I'm doing nowadays is guyo. Um, when I first planted these vines in 2004, uh, there was no one really to bounce any ideas off. So I actually went with split cordon, spur pruned. In my view nowadays, slight mistake. Um, it works. We make wine, but I'm slowly changing most of the vines over to Guyot, uh, which is an old, old, you know, French, Italian, northern Italian method of, of growing, and it does tend to suit these conditions better. So, yeah, you, you definitely have to adapt to different conditions. Just quickly, the soil, um, soil types that the Western Cape guys will talk about, old um, granitic soil You've got more of a clay structure here. How does the soil influence what you are growing on, uh, what you have under vine? Yeah, we've. <clears throat> you're right. It's um, we do have. I mean, even on this farm, we have. We've got Hutton. We've got Clavelli. We've got Griffin. We've got Glen Rosa complex. Um, actually, four meters down in the new block, there's some Calcaris Marl, which is interesting. But most of all, the soils are relatively acidic. And so you, the beauty about where we are, because we have such deep topsoils, we can broadcast and slowly but surely over decades change the soil structure to suit. Geology, you're not going to change. That's, that's always there. Which are soils, you can broadcast calcitic lime if you need it, or potassium or phosphorus or whatever it is you need. Do, do your soil science and take it very seriously. And slowly but surely change the, the acidic, base of the soil up to the pH you want and then make sure your trace elements are balanced. So it's a, it's, I mean, it's a constant management process both of, never mind the vine, but the environment as well that you have to, yeah. that you have to look after quite carefully. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we, we, have, a, we have Kikuyu that runs in between the aisles. Uh, you've got to have that or you'll end up with our torrential downpours with the whole lot down on the bottom of the slope. <laughs> so the root structures of everything you grow are important to keep that vineyard in place. Um, it's, it is seven days a week. Everything we do here is you don't, you don't go away and say I'm having a Christmas break for two weeks. Um, you're going to be in trouble. You like the Elgin guys? They they consider themselves as farmers first mm. and winemakers second because they, you know, a lot of them do have fruit on the farm, but they they are they're real earthy guys. They're farmers. They yeah. they're not um, checkbook winemakers yeah, by no, any you, by yeah. any manner. Yeah, the romance of uh, wine farming in this part of the world goes out the window in your first year. It is it is farming. Yeah. And, and you have to look after your farm. The fact is that it's <clears throat> a vine maybe is a little more romantic than a wheat field or a sugar cane, but at the end of the day, you've got to be on your hands and knees out there looking after it and adapting to your weather. We get some years incredibly dry, so you adapt to that, and then the next year it pours with rain day after day after day. So you've got to be out there and change your canopy. Change your canopy management. Ideas. What does it do for your yield? What does it do for the fruit in terms of um, being able to project? Yes, they're talking El Nino. That means we will be dry at certain times. In terms of your um, your management and your the yield that you're getting off the off the vine. I think a lot of to answer that a lot of it is the year before. Um, to be honest with you, we've had predictions of El Ninos. Um, and you know droughts and less rainfall more rainfall wetter you still have to look day by day i mean if you sat if i if i honestly took into account what with respect to them the weather forecasters say long term we'd, we'd be in a lot of trouble yeah, you'd love it <laughs> you know, we'd be in all kinds of trouble so yeah. what i do is i I tend to look at the year before if it was a really wet year or if it's a 2016, for instance, that we had a bit of a drought here. You know your next year should be different, assuming you get rain. But you can start off with 
a very dry start, spring, and then all of a sudden the heavens open and it rains for 40 days and it doesn't stop. As we've had this year, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember 2006, it rained for 43 consecutive days. Um, the weather forecasters aren't going to tell you that. You need to get out there and change. Were you what in your um, workshop building that uh, building that ark? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the weather <laughs> on the thirtieth day decided I'd better start getting to work. Mm. The weather forecasters this year said the first rains would come at the end of December, and here we are in November. Yeah, yeah so. they tended to say it'd be below average spring rainfall. We've knocked the socks off that in four days. Um, and it's still but that's how it comes. It's yeah. not. It's not a consistent thing. It can either come in four days or it can come over two months. Let's okay. Let's talk about the varietals because you've got quite a specific list of of wines that you produce. So the varietals that are fundamental to your to your wines. I see Viognier is a big part of it. You've got Nebbiolo. You've got your two reds, Syrah, Cabernet, uh, your Cab Sauv, and you've got your um, uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Um, are those varietals that are specific for a region like this, or are they kind of hybrid varietals? I mean, Cabernet, the guys in Simon, Simonsburg will say Cabernet Kings. Mm. Um, very different climate, very different approach, but you seem to be having success with that here. So the varietals that you've chosen, are they specific to the climate that you're in? No, once again, quite difficult. I mean, I always believed that... I mean, I wish we could get Dolcetto in this country because that's what I'd really love in the ground. Um, I always said Nebbiolo being a subalpine variety, we're marginal with that. So, and I've chatted to a lot of the Nebbiolo growers in the Western Cape and I, I keep saying, but isn't it too warm down there? Um, so Nebbiolo, you know, it does need very, very cold winters, which 20 years ago, minus 10 wasn't uncommon for us. Nowadays, it's minus five. So climate change is having an effect and, and that's starting to, to make me a bit concerned with minus five or minus six. Um, the Sauvignon, I always say we're very similar to the Loire Valley, although we're much higher up, incredibly similar. You get, you get the, the afternoon storms, you get cooler evenings, the rain comes, the hail comes, the sun comes back out. Very, very similar to the Loire. Burgundy would fall into that but uh, hence we have Chardonnay. Um, so what I did when I first planted, I, I really wasn't sure, but I tried to be as logical as possible. Uh, Viognier and Syrah, Northern Rhone. Um, it is, Viognier is most probably what Abingdon is best known for uh, and always has been. Um, the Cabernet, yeah, really interesting. It's not just Stellenbosch. It's not your, you know, a lot of people in the early days would say, you know, you need to, you need to bring Cabernet grapes up. Um, Abingdon has never brought any grape onto this farm or any drop of juice. We 100% of all our wines are grown here. But at the same time, our Cabernet has that distinctive elegance. It's delicate. Our skins are thinner at this sort of altitude. Um, we still get the very traditional cassis, but it's if anything, it's more, it's more northern Italian in style than it is French Bordeaux, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. you, you get a slight dustiness to it. And it, it gives our cab a, a lovely uniqueness. I mean, in 2010, a book was released in New York um, by arguably two of America's top wine writers. But um, they picked our cabinet. And New York's full of Italians, and they also thought it had a very Italian style to it. Uh, it's the altitude, it's, it's what we grow. Our Syrah is very northern Rhone, um, really northern Rhone. That's why we label it Syrah, not Shiraz. Um, it does have that profile. Uh, it's, I mean, you know, going forwards, we've just planted Tempranillo in the ground, which is going to be a whole new learning curve. I just needed a variety that ripened earlier. Um, and Rioja is, ha, has some altitude, it's got a lot of similarities to us. It's going to be a matter of how I grow it, and we've only just planted it, as to which style of trellising, pruning we, we go with it. But that'll, that we'll figure that out day by day. Pinot Noir country, in terms of the colder climate? Yeah, um, yeah the Holy Grail. Uh, I threaten every year to plant Pinot. Um, it is the Holy Grail, and, and before I'm dead, I need to have some in the ground just to say I did it. 
with every year I chicken out. Um, I, I think it is. You know, the thing about Pinot, it, it is a cool climate grape, and I think it would thrive here, but it's also got a very thin skin, and it is that susceptibility to downy mildew um, would be what will scare me. But you get on your hands and knees and work harder and get into the vine and and manage the type of canopy that will suit our climate. Um, so yeah, I, I will put it in the ground sometime. I was going to do it this year. I still might. I still have some space. Um, but it most probably next year because the season for grafted pinot is over. We discuss it every year for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> but purely for the bubbles. Yeah. I think we want it for the bubbles. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, for the MCC at the moment, we have a Blanc de Blanc. Um, the Pinot obviously would, and it, it does allow us to pick earlier um, in, in years that, say, are wetter, cooler. Um, but in a really good year, you can ripen it up, get, get the correct clone, you can ripen it up into, into a red. And, I am a big a, fan a of a Blanc de Blanc bubbly. Mm. There are not enough of them around, I don't think. I agree. And um, I find there's more brioche. I find them better on a pH. They're not so acidic. And they've got a lovely, I don't know, it's a, it's a warm, fuzzy feeling. That's why I love Reinhardt's, um bubbly, because it's a Blanc de Blanc. It's just, uh, just takes a bit of an edge off. I mean, me. I, I, yeah, I must admit, I think, I think the problem with South Africa as a whole is that Blanc de Blanc tends to bring out visions of a cheap plonk, um, whereas it's not. In its, in its true form. Um, and I think in the old days, people looked at it as, as a bit of a sort of box wine. Um, so that's maybe why, I mean, I know Morrison used to call their white Blanc de Blanc and then changed to solitaire and all of a sudden sales went through the roof, whereas it didn't sell as a Blanc de Blanc. Um, and I can only assume that's because people thought it wasn't any good, which yeah. it, it was. It was but it was but I'm with you on this, Chris. I think a lot of winemaking, they're putting little bits of this and bits of that and bits of that and moving away from the purest style and that purest Blanc de Blanc is beautiful when made properly. Yeah, I just think it's, you know, the, the styles have become, people are going drier and the drier they get, the more acidic they get and now there's a bit of a shift. The demi-sec is becoming very popular mm. from a champagne perspective and mm. not to say that the Blanc de Blanc is demi-sec but um, People's palates are, I think, shying away from that really tart, citrusy acidity that, that we're getting. And um, I, I, as I say, I, I'm very fond of a, of, a, of a Blanc de Blanc. Your rootstock, where did you start with your, with your rootstock? Where did you acquire that from? Wellington, the Cape, grafted stock. You see, the thing is also, I, when I first planted, obviously I, everything was grafted. That's what you do. But it was only everything we plant nowadays, unless it's a new variety, the Tempranillo is grafted. Um, we got that from Bosman Brothers. They were very few actually had any available. So thank you to them. Um, but a lot of what we plant now, we take cuttings, we self-root. Because um, Zulu Natal, if you look at, look at Phylloxera, it's, it's an imported louse. It, it's an imported disease. There were never any commercial vineyards up here, so our soils should, and I believe, are free of phylloxera. At 1140 meters, a lot of people, I can't quite understand how that affects it, but they say over 1100 meters, it's not going to survive either. Maybe that's the frosts, I have no idea, or the colder soil temperatures. Um, so nowadays, for instance, our Nebbiolo, we started with 168 grafted stock from Vitatec. We bought the mother block that they had of two different varieties. We now have 800 in the ground. It's a long process of taking your cuttings, creating roots, putting them in the ground. And then seven years later, you end up with fruit. Um, <clears throat> so the grafted stock, my only worry about getting grafted stock is obviously leaf roll virus. We don't have any leaf roll virus up here. And so when I have to bring something up, I'm, it, it better be disease-free certified. Uh, I'm very scared of bringing anything up. I'd rather root my own stock, which I know is virus-free. Established. What have you got under vine? How much, 
what hectorage have you got? Um, yeah, it's a difficult one. I, <coughs> I, excuse me, I, <coughs> excuse me. I don't particularly like to talk about hectorage. The farm is seven hectares. Um, when I first planted, the spacings I used um, per aisle and vine distance are very different to what I put in the ground now. So when I first planted, we were about 2,200 vines a hectare, and we planted initially two hectares, just under. Now the vine spacing is closer to six to 7,000 vines a hectare. So I tend to prefer to talk in vines rather than hectareage, simply because of the way I've changed in, in how we go about growing, trellising, and the style of pruning. Um, so at the moment we've got somewhere, I've actually, I've got to do it, um, get a better count, but I'm guessing just over 7,000 vines in the ground on about three odd hectares. Um, but it's only the new plantings that are, that are this denser style. Um, so the majority is still sitting at that 2-2. Two, two. And you've got, I would imagine, Viennier is your, is, is, is the predominant uh, grape or um, not? Know, kind of, yes, I mean, it, it is. There's, you know, we've, the thing about the Viognier grape is it gives you a huge bunch compared with Chardonnay. But your, so, yeah, your yield is so fast, yield right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you get, although it is slightly glutinous compared with Sauvignon, you've, you've got to, in the, in the winemaking process, you've, you've really got to take care with Viognier because it is quite glutinous. Um, but it, the bunch is two to three times the size of the, of the others. We have about twelve to thirteen hundred Viognier, whereas we have eleven hundred Chardonnay, and you know about a thousand odd Sauvignon, um, as far as the whites are concerned. But the Viognier gives us three times more volume at the end of the day, so hence why we make so many different types of styles of Viognier. Mm. Um, it is the wine I, I, I must admit, it, it very much suits this climate. Um, but it is quite difficult because it is, it's natural low acidity, it's more tannic. Um, you've got to be careful on your skin contact and, and how you press it um, and how you make it. Um, you know, it's just something that sticks in the top of my head. Everyone knows you make Viognier in old oak. It, it's just something I read years and years and years ago. Um, and we've always done it that way. We do make a stainless steel version, but that's only when we have a huge crop. And we're, we're just taking out some different variations of. And the, you get a very, very different taste with a stainless steel version. It's more yeah. of a Pinot Gris style as opposed to Viognier. Before we get to the wines themselves and have a chat about those, let's just talk about you guys. Um, so you came here you're through a need to be with your son who was at school. And you started farming. What did you do before that? Um, oil. I drilled oil wells. I went out looking for oil, more exploration, wildcat. Um, so the background was oil. I met Jane in Singapore. I'll let Jane do some talking for a while. Um, I met Jane in Singapore. We moved to Indonesia. We then moved to the Middle East, Syria, where I had spent many years in the 70s and early 80s and realized why I left um, when I got there um, the first time. So we came to South Africa. But I'll, I'll let Jane explain that story. <laughs> yeah, so Ian's original occupation was obviously oil. Um, we then moved to Johannesburg. Didn't really know what we were going to do. Um, had a chance meeting with someone that was working with Sol Kersner and he was busy doing the, the palace at the Lost City. And um, they said... You've just come back from Asia. Could you help us with this project? I was known as the I can do it girl. I'd put my hand up and go, we can do it. And then Ian would deal with it. So we started working with Sol on the palace and we slowly then got into a sort of furniture and decor supply company for hotels and lodges. And we did that very successfully for about 20 years. Okay. Um, and that we did that in Johannesburg. And then when we moved down here, we brought that business down um, and we continued the business here. And that actually got us through those early years of, of, of the vineyard because we all know vineyards are bottomless yeah, pits. Yeah, make a small fortune. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was literally, someone said to us, you, you need 10 years to break even. And they were actually dead 
dead right. We it took ten years to break even. So we luckily had that company, which was fairly successful, very successful, to to tide us through those initial years. And then once the tasting room became as busy as it is now, um, we were able to give that up and focus solely on on the vineyard and the the tasting room. Where did you learn your viticulture? Where did you learn your oenology? Um, I read books initially. Best um, way. Yeah. Totally. But I, totally. I read for two years before I even planted a vine. Um, I read and read and read and read, and I still do. I mean, it, it's there, there's no difference nowadays to 17 years ago. Um, and then the, the wine-making side of things, we were lucky the first wines we made in 2007, some of them ended up down in the Western Cape, and the winemakers started coming. And when the winemakers started coming up, there was there's no book in the world that'll teach you experience. Um, and the Jeff Greers or the Ratcliffs or the Hekovich or the Masons, whoever, would come up and say, "Have you ever thought of this or that in the style of wine you're making?" And I, I listen and I listen well, um, and then adapt accordingly. I saw you on your on your website. Sorry, mm, Jane. Mm. I, you you do have a lot of affiliation. People coming up from the Western Cape, doing um, tastings, doing presentations on your farm. You're well connected. It's not as though we're KwaZulu-Natal, or they KwaZulu-Natal, and they are, you know, they're barking up the wrong tree. There have been people here in the past who've kind of tainted the name of KwaZulu-Natal wine. No, no, true. But you guys are, you know, you're well connected. You're doing it properly. You've got the support, it seems, of of the... the guys doing doing it in the Western Cape. Where, where to from here? Today, Lions River, tomorrow the world. Can I answer that? Because I'm, I feel quite passionate about it. The, the wine fraternity is phenomenal. And I think when we started out on this journey, they were so interested in what we were doing. And, and I, think, I think Ian proved himself because I think they saw he wasn't just exactly what you said, one of these checkbook farmers. He was down there on his hands and knees in the vineyard, really passionate about what he's doing and determined to, to make it work. And, and I think they, they respected what he was doing. And so they would come up, because this was interesting and different and, 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 and there's that obvious interest, and they, were, they would come up for an hour and connect with him and 10 hours later or spend the night, miss their flights and spend the night and go gee, I'm really impressed with what you guys are doing and, and how can we help? And that kind of interaction and help has been huge, huge for us. It's invaluable. You, don't, you can't learn that sort of knowledge. You know, and they're freely giving it to us. So over the years, our give back to those mentors is, can we do a wine day for you? Can we do something with you? Can we, can we you know, help your presence in KwaZulu-Natal? Because they have been phenomenal in getting us to where we are today. Yeah, I would say Abingdon, Abingdon wouldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for the Western Cape. There is certainly no competition. There's no animosity. Um, we get an enormous amount of support. And always have done. Always have done. Um, you know, there's people I can call at three in the morning um, and say, I'm in the cellar and I'm slightly confused about this or that. And although they might initially be a bit grumpy, they will have a coffee and they'll sit there and say, go take some, do this, do that, and let me know. Um, it's, and that was early days. I, I promise you I haven't done it for a, a very long time. But in the early days, I was in a position to be able to do that. And they, they got out of bed. Um, so we're very thankful for how they've helped because you can, you can learn viticulture um, by knowing your vines. You have to know your vines. If you don't know it, all the books in the world aren't going to help you. But winemaking is something that experience is the most important. And a lot of these top, top winemakers in this part of the world, as in the Western Cape, have all done harvests all over the world. And they they understand the, the profile of our wines and the grapes we're getting. And so although nowadays there's very few questions... Um, still a lot of books, but there's very few questions. In the early days, there were thousands of questions. And, and without their help, 
um, we'd still be about five years ago as opposed to where we are today. It's good to know that they that they came running to help it. So I think Absolutely. it's uh, really do. But I think it's testimony to the fact that you have to kind of prove yourself. Yeah, I think initially, you know, you've got to, as you say, show that you are willing to get your hands dirty. You know, try and try and go wrong and make mistakes and and go back and and that's that's what kind of earns you your. Your stripes. I always <laughs> tell a lovely story. We were very blessed three years ago to be invited to one of the world's top wine estates, La Pam, in Bordeaux. And we were taken by a South African winemaker. And the idea was that we would meet the owner, we would do a little senator, and, and then go on our way. And Jacques, the owner, met Ian, and he took one look at Ian's hands, and he had spent half an hour with him talking, and he said, these are the hands and the mind and this, the talk of a true vigneron, vigneron. And he was so taken with Ian that he actually spent the entire day with us. And I think that's a huge part of it, is seeing that he's actually passionate and doing what he's doing on a daily basis. Is there room for more in this area? Could we see a, a, a small boutique winery fraternity as in what we've seen with the Midlands meander in terms of a lot of a lot of craft a lot of people who are passionate about what they do springing up in this area and becoming a small wine region on its own no definitely but the, the problem is when we planted in 2004 in 2005 there was an explosion of plantings um, about 36 people planted that I know of, so there most probably were more. There's one left, and that's Highgate, Pigley. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of the reason is that, and there was another explosion in 2007 and 2009, and people kept planting. Um, the problem with a lot of the failures is there was too much, I kind of call it rail and post farming. You get up in the morning with a cup of coffee and point at people and say right do that and then four o'clock in the afternoon you might have a cold beer in your hand and you're still on the rail and post and to be honest with you I think a lot of the failures um, are a matter of work harder because you have to don't expect to work as hard as they do down in the Western Cape you've got to triple that in this sort of environment but you've got to understand the science of of, of northern Europe um, it's it's not this is not Mediterranean you can't you know our vines will grow three four five centimeters in in one day not in a week or ten days or two weeks it, it's incredibly vigorous and you've got to slow it down the secret is is slowing it down but you have to understand the fundamentals of the science of viticulture and if you don't you are wasting a lot of money yeah so to date all who have planted, pretty much, well, actually, all. It's been a romantic notion. And we're waiting, because we think this will be a fantastic new wine region, for someone to come along with the passion and the knowledge and the drive to do it properly. Well, as Ian was saying, it's, it's, it's three times the work. So if you're not prepared to, prepared to do three times, if you want to throw a checkbook at it, well... It's a lot, a lot easier to throw a checkbook at it in the Western Cape because you can buy anybody and you can exactly. buy anything. You've got and, generations. And yeah, um, but here, who do you buy well, that, that to make your wine for you? Yeah. Um, it's, it's not possible. You have to do it yourself. The, yeah. the winemaking is, in my view, is 10%. It's not even that, maybe 8% of the final product. The, the 90 to 92% is, is the viticulture, and, you know, the Zulus don't have a culture of this. They don't have 370 years of growing vines, and there's a lot of grey area thinking. You, you have to look at each vine separately. You won't prune that vine the same as that, and if you don't, if, if you can't explain that in fluent Zulu, the grey area thinking, you better be doing it yourself. Um, and that's what I, I can't speak fluent Zulu so I've tried and tried and tried but it's very very difficult so I prune the vines myself um, and hopefully sons and will slowly but surely get to understand that and maybe their Zulu will be better and they can they can explain it and, a better and understanding of it part. yeah it's just an under it's an, it's an understanding it's profile isn't it I mean it's yeah. it's really just to 
to try and get that kind of understanding. I always say to people when they when they teach wine, you know, we had that Soweto Wine Festival, which was very, I don't know, I, I find it a bit condescending in terms of what it did. But um, if you're going to teach people about wine, how do you teach somebody about what is cassis to somebody who has to walk 15Ks to school yeah. and and doesn't get a square meal a day. Mm. It's, it's a different language that needs to be taught in a very compassionate and very understanding way. Mm. Otherwise, it'll just it'll disappear. It, 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 mm. it won't I, be... I, th- I think, you know, winter pruning, for instance, is a good example. One cut will affect three years of growth. So you better get it right. Yeah. Because if you screw it up, the next year and the year after that, you will you will see your vineyard do some really bizarre things. Um, so one cut is three years. You need to think of this year's harvest, next year's harvest, and the shape for the three years' time. To come, yeah. You can't but, explain but, that. But also what Chris is saying is the, work, the workers, the help, the managers, the whatever, on the farms in the Cape... It's generations. They've yeah. grown up with it as children. They've grown their grandparents with it. It's in their blood. They know, they feel, it's, all, it's a part of who they are. Yeah. We don't have that. Yeah. That's the difficulty. That is difficult. Let's talk about the wines. Mm. Okay. okay, so a lot of it, Vionia. Um, we tasted the, the pet nut. And that's a, I call it a, a, a beer wine. It's, it's to bottle before the first fermentation it's a bit like craft beer isn't it you yeah. cap it you and then you kind of hope for the best you, you that's where the that's where the policing of the wine stops it does its own thing in that yeah. bottle why did you choose to do that i mean that's a um, that's an interesting variation because not many people choose that route yeah i i it wasn't my choice it was my daughter's um laurie who's outside doing a course at the moment we had a we had a the 2017 harvest was was a big harvest and we had we had a lot going on <clears throat> and she turned around right in the middle of the sort of fermentation and said why don't we why don't we do a pet nut and my initial reaction was I have you think, run mad <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> not sure screw it up you're fired <laughs> um, but. She said, no, seriously, let's draw it off and let's, let's go. And it, 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 it actually was, in a way, a bit of a joke because we didn't really document. We just thought, let's try it. Fails, too, too much, not enough, but let's go ahead and crown cap this thing and, and bottle it. And it has worked. I mean, there's one or two bottles that are slightly aggressive, but that's expected. You know, you're going to end up with a bit more of this and that. Um, but on the whole, it's, it's been quite a successful thing. And it was really just a matter of trying something else. Where we're always wanting to, to make something different. So if you look at the 2017s, there's an MCC. We won't, we won't even disgorge that for another year or so. Um, and we do open one every now and then, riddle one and open it, see what it's doing. And, and that, that's great. We had to pick it slightly earlier than Chardonnay, simply because of that lack of natural acidity. Um, there's the pet nats. There's unwooded. There's wooded viognes. Um, it was just something learned. No, but to get back to this learned. pet nat, he's created a monster now because the pet nat is probably our most popular bubbles at the moment. And everybody can't wait to come back next year for the pet nat, but they haven't documented it. So <laughs> are we going to make the same beast next year? <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, see. we'll, see. well, we'll I just found it um, <laughs> extraordinary. It's, it's not as exuberant as a, as a traditional bubbly. It's, it's, the, the bubbles are far fewer, mm. but they're quite intense. Yeah. And the flavors are intense. And there's a beautiful balance between fruit and acidity. Um, and also quite like that it's cloudy. It just gives me a... Slightly cloudy. As I said earlier on, I'm a born-again craft beer maker in my, in my back room. And I just love that um, element that it's, it's a little crafty. It's yeah. just something that it's is... A bit, there's a hipster side to it. And it's unpredictable in that craftiness. Mm. It's got that un- unpredictability, as you say, you, you opened... Um, popped the cap off that bottle and it, yeah, it, um, yeah. it, it was a bit more exuberant than, than you were used to but that's what 
that kind of craft is all about. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it honestly is. It's, you know, I, I personally, I would drink all my wines cloudy if we were able to get away with it, as in the wine spirit world. They want crystal clear. They want, it's, it's fine, as long as it's stable to a point. But even, you know, even protein stability with a cloudiness is not, not going to hurt you. Mm. Um, so I kind of, I would love to see, and I'm sure the Swatland, you know, the, the sort of uh, long-bearded surfer dudes down there will slowly but surely push that side and, and get to a point where we're used to drinking cloudy wine. Pet Nat is. It's, mm. a, it's you're drawing it off on, on the primary fermentation. It's got some yeast in it. It's still fermenting. It's going to have sediment, lees in it. So as long as you do turn it upside down quite slowly... Otherwise, the first few glasses are crystal clear and the poor chap at the end gets, gets the rest of it. And it's interesting for me in the tasting room because no one has been, has not enjoyed the cloudiness. It, it, it's, it's, I think it's, they expect it. It's something that they, yeah. that you expect from other craft beer or pet nat. But if you were to be offered a glass of Chardonnay and it was cloudy, you would mm. say, uh-oh, mm. no thank you all. Yeah, well, that's it. And I, you know... Drinking a Chardonnay out of the barrel is, is to me, um, it's what it should be. Yeah. You know, that, that's the real taste. Once you've, once you've find it and filtered it and stabilized it, how much actually have you stripped out of it? Now, the, uh, your, your regular MCC, mm-hmm. is that always Blanc de Blanc, 100% Viognier? Chardonnay. Uh, Chardonnay. Chardonnay. Chardonnay, beg your pardon. Yeah, Chardonnay. Slap me we for do that. make, we, there is we've the been 17, talking Viognier last Yeah, week. the 17 is the first MCC we've made out of Viognier. Okay. It's still up in the cellar, it's still under crown cap. We'll look That's at where it. my misconception yeah. came in. But, uh, the MCC's the Blanc de Blanc Chardonnay, 100% Chardonnay. Okay. Um, and that, even that's changed a lot. Um, the 13, 14, 15 was made in 500 litre old oak um, so there is a, a sort of lightly oak style to it we didn't make a 16 um, 17 our daughter arrived back she's uh, just embarking on her master of wine at the moment but she had a very different view as to how we should make bubbles and um, we make it in stainless steel we do not go through malolactic and it's in and out and let's go ahead and make the purest form of it Actually, we've started disgorging the pink. The whites we will start next year. Um, so by then we'll be closer to three years. We will leave some for five, and if needs be, we'll leave some for seven. But we don't, it, it is a brute nature, so we don't add any dosage. We, we, I don't even bother to add sulfur to it, to be honest with you. Um, we did in the 13s and 14s and 15s, and I couldn't understand what the sense is. Why do you need seven parts per million or nine it's not going to actually it's not going to do any good i don't think um so we've we've agreed that the carbon dioxide will be enough for us if we get to a point where we do need to start adding sulfur dioxide we will but at the moment it's as natural as we can get and it is a brute nature zero dosage non non dosage um the stainless steel version, we most probably will have to add some dosage to it, uh, simply because it is that acute. Okay. Um, especially without malolactic. Um, but the pink, I don't believe we need to because it's made note, has gone through malolactic. Um, very different style. But the whites, Laurie's had a, an influence on, and that's the way we're going forward. And, and I think she's right. Um, so it'll be a very pure form as opposed to the 13, 14, 15s made in oak. Reds. Syrah, Shiraz, but you say s- produced more in the northern European style of Shiraz, Syrah. And then you've got your Cabernet Sauvignon. We'll get to that because that's, the, that's where you're going to butt heads with the, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. western, the western capers. The, in terms of getting that expression out of your reds, let's start with the Syrah. Because reds are expressionist wines, aren't they? They, they just tend to express more. And I, and I think our Syrah, more than any of our wines, is the one that expresses Abingdon the most, interestingly enough. Yeah, we, as I said, we, we make a Syrah, not a Shiraz. Uh, a lot of that is the altitude, it's our climate. We have always had a natural acidity in all our reds. We've never added a drop of acid to any of our reds. There's no need to. Um, it's the Syrah... 
is the one the one wine that I'm actually more I suppose proud of in a way because it does it is a reflection of this part of the world. It 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 is a cool climate Syrah. It is French. Um, we've had many many tastings blind of our Syrahs over the years from masters of wine in Paris, masters of wine in in the UK. And not one person yet, blind, has ever picked it as South African. And, and that I'm incredibly proud of. And they've actually sent us all the original tasting notes um, of these tastings, which over the years and decades we've had our wines subjected to. Um, we do get an elegance, a delicate side. If you like a gut-punching Barossa or a, a South African Talbach Robertson hot area of Shiraz, we're not your cup of tea. But if you if you do like a cross hermitage, even as opposed to a Saint Joseph on the other side of the river, we are your cup of tea. Um, and I think we've created a lot of interest in that difference between a South African Shiraz and and a French Syrah, a Victoria Syrah as opposed to a South Australian Shiraz, a Kiwi Syrah. Um, you know, there, there's a reason for it, and I think if you if you make a syrup and you grow the vines where you taste it, and you say there's no way in hell that's a Shiraz, don't label it one, and I, vice versa. I can recognise an Abingdon syrup anywhere. It's just it's so uniquely ours, which is lovely. Yeah, that's good. Then the Cabernet. Yeah, you were talking about the Cabernet earlier on, and how. Um, it's been it's been given an accolade. Well, you know, in terms of what it's about, because the the guys under the shadow of the of Simonsburg will <laughs> will say we are the Cabernet Kings, but so will the guys under the Helderberg, and so will the guys in the Yonkersort Valley. So everybody's fighting in the same regions to say we, we are the Cabernet Kings, but you're producing something really special it's, in it's terms of the different. Cabernet, but different. Yeah, it's different. You know, we are a cool climate expression of, of the variety and, and you know, I wouldn't take anything away from those lovely cabs that we do tend to make down in those areas. I mean, they're, they're beautiful. I mean, we had a fun chap on Sunday bought a 2010 and a 2011 Hartenberg. And I said, one of those, there were no stickers on it. But I said, you must have bought those bottles before they got best red in the world yeah. at Decanter in 2014. And I said it was definitely one of them, but Google it. And sure enough, it was the 10. It was absolutely magnificent. Ours is different. Um, you know, we're not, we're not likely to go and win best reds or big gongs for it because it is delicate. Um, but at the same time, you can drink our cab in 15 years' time and it will still be good. I think that's yeah, the essence of it. That's the essence there. of cab, isn't it? Mm. Is that it ages well yeah. and it continues to grow with age and become better with age. And our natural acidity. To me, you know, the acid in it. Um, tannins are not... I mean, you can drink our cab now, you can drink it in 15 years, and it, it, it ages really slowly, delicately. Um, there's enough tannin in there, but the, the natural acidity is is the defining moment of it. And we had a 2008 and nine. In fact, the other other month and week, and the primary flavours, the the primary fruit, still there. And we're talking a wine that was made with four-year-old vines. And that's, it's still... There you go. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exciting for us, that those four-year-old vines were producing a wine that we can taste 10 years on. What are we going to do now? How long yeah, the, we... cab, the cab's a little more difficult than the Syrah. Syrah is more forgiving. When you have a really wet year, cab hates it. Mm. Cab hates the rain. Um, whereas the Syrah will say, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll get there it. in the end. <laughs> Cab, you, you have some anxious moments. So when it's a really dry year, a good year with cool evenings, we get great cabs. In our profile, when it's a wet year, cab is really difficult. And most wet years, we end up making a blend. So harder for you, harder work, harder work for you. Yeah. Let's talk Nebbiolo. Ha. The Nebbiolo, you, um, I mean, very few people will they do it. I know a couple of people in the Western Cape normally to 
to um, put together a kind of a Rhone blend or an Italian blend. Um, Peter Finlayson yeah. is uh, is big on Nebbiolo yeah, down in, in in the uh, in the Himalayana Valley. What what made you put Nebbiolo in the ground? Um, first of all, it's it's it, it is my passion. Out of any wine in the world, Nebbiolo is it. Um, I, I I love all forms of Nebbiolo, whether it be Barolos, Barbarescas, Valtellinas, Raros, Langes. It, it doesn't matter. Um, they're all different, and they're all there with with this big smile on my face when I get to drink one. Um, the main thing I was thinking is because of our, especially when I first started talking about it, and you know the minus ten, minus twelve, uh, Valtellina, for instance, which arguably they say they've got the oldest clones in the world before Piermont, Piermonte. Um, I questioned, I was talking to a viticulturist at Nino Negri, and they are the biggest producers in the world, uh, in Valtellina, and I didn't tell him I had them in the ground. I told him I was thinking about it, see his reaction. And he said, how cold do you get in winter? And I said, minus 6 to minus 10, and he said, mm, nah. <laughs> and I, he said, it's too warm. Too warm. He said, here we get minus 22. It's, the snow is that deep. It, it is a subalpine, and it needs that to go to sleep. Our, our Nebbiolo, when every French variety has lost its leaves, they've all gone. The Nebbiolo is still green. It's still waiting for winter. And we've already hit minus one, minus two. We can get a minus three, and it's green. And they slowly start changing color if you get a few of those temperatures. It's not going to go dormant in a lot of the places down the Western Cape because it's not cold enough. So it just won't recognize winter. It won't no, go to sleep. It doesn't. It just does not want to go to sleep. And then you get the problems of how you prune it. Um, I had some light bulb moments. I used to have it growing vertical shoots, spur pruned. Uh, you certainly don't grow it that way because your first three buds are infertile. So don't prune down to two or three buds. You'll end up with one bunch here, one bunch there. You've got to take the saw out and start again. Um, so there's a lot to growing it, which because I think I'm so passionate about I would have given up but I thought that nah, I'm still not doing this correctly I need to I need to do it properly um, and I'm incredibly proud of what we have produced and we still haven't we still haven't produced Nebbiolo um, in a bigger format where we're fermenting it with cooled stainless steel or in old barrels we are at the moment about to receive some manholes we're going to cut holes in our 500 litre barrels and start fermenting in those in other words do it scientifically um, but we're still making a very traditional nebbiolo as opposed to too much red and black fruit too warm he's making a beautiful nebbiolo and he presses it between his palms <laughs> I can't wait to see <laughs> today we tasted the initially the chardonnay the chardonnay I, I, I quite liked it with that Subtle oak, mm. but quite a nice fruit profile um, that you don't get with a traditional Chardonnay. The Chardonnay is citrus and oak a lot of the time, whereas this was a little bit more. It had the it had the wood, but it it was more a, a bit a bit more like an unwooded Chardonnay in its characteristic with that extra element. You get to taste the wood. grape. Mm. Yeah, well, it, yeah, it's interesting. With, to the say same that. thing as, as as this this Viognier. The the grape you, you're getting to taste the fruit. You're getting to taste the grape. Mm. You, there is the wood, but the grape is there. Yeah, and that's that is that's the way we do things here. We don't uh, we don't use any new oak in in any of our whites or anything close to it. The Chardonnay we've always made in three and five hundred liter oak barrels, anything from four years old to 17 years old, depending on how far through our journey we've got. Initially, they all started at four years. Um, once again, it gets back to the Western Cape, Clay Constantia. All our whites, pinks, are all, every single one is made in an X Clay Constantia barrel, and most of them Van de Constance. Back to that wonderful um, friendship we were yeah. talking about. Okay. And they have literally Adam Mason originally and Matt Day nowadays 
Um, I can call Matt up and say, I've got a whoopsie here, I need a 300 litre barrel. And he'll say, when? And I said, well, I, I need to put it in now. Um, and he'll literally pump out a barrel and say, send your truck this afternoon. Um, 300 is coming. Uh, so it's not old stock. I don't, I honestly don't, I mean, our barrels all come from a very, very good relationship where I know I'm not going to get anything that's bad. Um, yeah, the, the Chardonnay this year, because of that 3500, but this, this 7, uh, 18, I decided to play one of those games and I thought, wonder what happens if we take red wine barrels that have had Cabernet Sauvignon in them for seven years and we put our Chardonnay in it, ferment in them, and we'll go to Barrique as opposed to the three and five hundred litre. Um, and initially, the thought process from the likes of Jane is, you screw it up, it comes out pink. And I said, well, then we have a we have a rosé, um, but I don't think so, not if we do it correctly. And so the seventeen unwooded Viognier, done in stainless steel, I took all the leaves out of that, every single bucket load, and poured it into the barrel and then put the, the Chardonnay on top of it. And the leaves sucked out the pigment, the Chardonnay came out white. But what I was hoping for was, is there any hint of seven years of Cabernet? Mm. So eight-year-old Barrique, um, seven years worth of red wine, hopefully that slight difference in taste that you were tasting was some Cabernet Sauvignon that had been in the oak uh, and come out with the leaves and through batonnage um, we were able to express that in the Chardonnay. Maybe there is something the KwaZulu Natal winemakers can teach the Western Cape winemakers. I doubt it. There is. I did say the word maybe, but no, uh, I, doubt. I think, well, I, what I've gathered from you guys, definitely in the terms of, of, um, of, of viticulture, there's, there's something that can be learned from the journey and the, let's call it the, the, the struggle that you guys have, have had to put up with. When I say put up with, but um, you've had to go through to be able to do it successfully on, on a property like this. It's, it's nice and rustic. It, it's very typically Midlands meander is when I walked in. It's not... Steel and uh, shiny. Well, <laughs> it's not award-winning architect designed, no. overlooking... Um, you know the Franschhoek Valley. It's 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 rustic. It's it's Midlands meander, but it it says something of what you do in the wine, the barrels, the the ambiance. But it says something about where you are. And I kind of get the fact that you guys don't want to you you you, you want to always remember that you're you're in the Midlands. We'll never pretend that we're anywhere else. We're in the Midlands. Yeah, it's also, um, it's so many people, because our wines always sell out quite quickly, um, people say, well, I don't understand. Expand, expand, expand. And I, I always say it's not economy of scale. Your most expensive red wine in the world is Le Pain. He has two hectares. But when you, when you go into the vineyard, it's the nephew the niece might be there, the uncle might be there. It's, it's family run and, and they command these incredible prices for, for this amazing wine. And we're very similar. If you try and get too big in this part of the world, you will not manage your crop. You're either going to rot, it'll be too big, not enough, um, downy, powdery, mildew, botrytis, I mean, sour rot, grey rot, it'll just keep going on and on and on. So you have to work out what you can manage. And in my view, we still got land. If the next generation wants to plant more, I'm done. I, I don't have any more hours in the day. I love what I have. Um, and, and it's, you need more people with the mindset of, I get up at six o'clock or five o'clock or four o'clock as we get closer into summer and I come back in at four o'clock five o'clock six o'clock in the evening and you do that every day I think also this whole thing and it and 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 if you think about our life and why we moved to the Midlands we moved to the Midlands so that we could be closer to our children we're a very close family this business 
at risk of sounding a bit corny, but it's who we are, is about a family business. So we, we don't have hordes of staff. We have a couple of staff. We run this tasting room as a family. We have our son, our daughter-in-law, our daughter, our son-in-law, Ian and I. We run it as a family. It's about a way of life, too. So if we stop having fun, if we start developing it into this steel and glass and millions of staff and something that we're not, we're losing the essence of who we are and why are we doing this. Two weeks ago, American Express said this was the best kept secret. In South Africa. Exactly that. Why did they say you were the best kept secret? What, what, what is the secret that you're keeping? So exactly that. We asked that question when we won the award and it was such a huge, it was a massive surprise for us. I mean, we went along to the awards expecting to maybe just drink some great bubbles and have a wonderful evening. We picked up one of the, the top marks for the top restaurants, tasting rooms, eateries, whatever you want to call us, in the country, and then won this very special award. And we went, why us? And they, and they sorry, another family member. It's fine, it adds to the enemy. <laughs> That's part of who we are too. And, and, and the answer was, it's, it's the passion, it's the, the, the energy, it's the, the ambience, it's, the, it's, it's everything that created this little gem. And that is what made us so proud about the award, is it, it wasn't we create a five-star wine or we create the best dish in the country. We create an atmosphere, we create something here that we are all so passionate about as a family, and they recognize that. And that for us was just amazing. Your Surah. <laughs> Thank you. Amazing. Sorry to, to interrupt you. That is, no, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you Sorry, like a, that is one hell of a wine. If you. you like <laughs> a, it's a 17. It's a 17. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that is amazing. amazing. And you Whoa. won't be able to drink that in 10 years' So to time. me, this is Abingdon. No, this is a this wine. This is Abingdon. Sure, this is a wine. Um, so on a typical day, do you do take bookings? Do you, people can come and taste it? Or do you have a, a bit more of a foot traffic at certain times of the year, people coming in, doing something more regular on a regular basis? So we are busy 12 months of the year. There isn't a season. Um, we, we open on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday okay. for a reason. Um, those are obviously your when foot traffic is at, at its highest in, in the Midlands. Um, and we are fully booked Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every week. Um, Monday to Thursday, we are, as a family, busy in the vineyard, in the cellar. And we are doing things like courses that we're doing today, so we run the school. So Monday to Thursday is a more academic work side of things. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, tasting room opens, and we have a lot of fun. Laurie, your daughter, I met her briefly. She's busy with a class. She runs something called the Kuzulunatal School of Wine. What is the, what is the essence behind that? Is, is it just to teach people about wine, or is it to really get people, next generations, planting into KwaZulu-Natal? It's, it's both. So she, when she decided to come back from London and realized that she was so good at what she was doing, and, and she wanted to be able to, to, to take it to KwaZulu-Natal. She wanted to be able to teach. She wanted to be able to, to show people in this province, because we've always been the kind of forgotten province, if you think about it, um, so she opened the school, and, and it's to take, it's to to take the industry to another level. It's to to she she does a sommelier's um, uh, education as well with Sasser, and, and and it's it's to uplift not only the restaurants, the lodges, it, it, the community. Because you didn't tell, she she wants to teach, she wants to widen her horizons, she wants wants a broader knowledge of wine, she wants wine in Cuisine Natal to get to where wine in the Cape is. It's part of our lifestyle. Where can we get this wine? Where is this wine available? Or is it only available here? I mean, if you look at what we see, you guys are boutiqueists, let's face it. You're a boutique winery. So anybody interested in Abingdon wines, where they, do they go? They have to come to Abingdon. And we did that for a reason. We want... We don't ever want to just be a bottle on the shelf. We want you to come. We want you to... When this tasting room is open, which is why we only do it Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 
you will you will meet someone from the family. You will meet Ian, myself, Laurie, Amanda, Hadley. You'll meet one of us and we'll tell you our story. And for me, anyone wanting to buy our wine needs to hear our story. Once you've heard our story, that's for me the best part is that Everyone comes back year after year, and as we release new vintages, they all go, give us our allocation. So that, that you know, happens every year. Um, but we don't want to just be an anonymous bottle on a shelf. That should be the test kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> no, really, this is a this is a syrup worth talking about for But that's many, what I'm saying. It is, know, this is a really good wine. Yeah, it, we've had so many... Um, we've had a lot of winemakers over the past, South African winemakers and foreign make, winemakers that have, make a noise. that have um, tasted them blind. And that's what I said. We still have yet to have one person say that is from South Africa. I remember the Slough Wine Society in the UK phoned me up years ago and they said, please send through a case of your syrup. We're doing a South Africa Northern Rhone and there are two masters of wine in the group, and there were something like 23 of them. And they sent us all the tasting notes. Not one person said it was on the South African side. They all said it was on the Northern Rhone. I remember a, a French lady in Paris calling me before the World Cup, and she said, my name is whoever it was. I, wasn't, I was on the phone. I wasn't. And she said, I am a master of wine. I'm calling you from Paris um, and I have a bottle of your 2008 Syrah on my desk. And the reason I'm calling is the world is coming to your country for the Soccer World Cup. Mm. And she, quote, we as French do not enjoy your tutti fruity new world wines. Unquote. <laughs> Only the French could say yeah. that. <laughs> and she said, so to answer your question, where can the French supporters buy your Syrah? Because that is a true Northern Rhone. I was a little upset with the tutti fruity bit, but you know, a lovely kind of uh, point taken towards Abingdon, and we have some fantastic Syrahs and Shiraz in this country. So I don't believe the French did very well in the World Cup, um, but she was putting across that what she was tasting that 2008 was all about the Northern Rhone, mm. and that's Abingdon. So that said, although you can only buy the wine from here, we have some really lovely listings. So we've been honoured with some really special listings in, in really top-class establishments, um, and, and otherwise we career all over the country. So online as well? Mm. Okay. Mm. Well, I don't know. The wine that I've tasted is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Um, just a wonderful sense of family and a sense of well-being and a sense of being in a in the Midlands and, the, and it's just lovely to be here and lovely to know that there are people who make wine with a, with a passion and with a farming sense to make it excellent. I mean, this is excellent wine. Thank you, Chris. And it's a lovely vibe and a lovely, it's a wonderful place to be and all I can say is if you are doing a Midlands meander, you'd be stupid <laughs> if, you, if you didn't pop into Abingdon and taste the wine. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all the best to you and to the family, and yeah, keep this the best kept secret. Although we have to let, I think the to, secret is out. We have to let <laughs> people know. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think it's going to be the best kept secret for for much longer. But keep making the wine and keep keep the passion, thank guys. You. Jane and Ian, thank you so much for your time. <laughs>